will please. 17th Division of the Book of Acts is where we're going to spend our time today. And while you're opening your Bible and settled there, we welcome all of you. Thanks for being with us this morning. If you're visiting with this church family today, as I am, we especially welcome you. Thank you for coming our way, and thank you for the encouragement that you give us by being here this morning. It's uh, wonderful to be back with you. I, we have been together several times in the past, and I have always, every single time, enjoyed being with you and have looked forward to being with you this week as well. We'll have some more introductory things to say when we get to the worship period. We need to kind of get right down to the business at hand since we have kind of abbreviated amount of time this morning, and so we'll do that very quickly and, uh, as, we, as we begin this morning. You can see on the screen that we're going to talk this morning about Christians' culture and common ground. What we mean by that, I think, will become abundantly clear in just, just a minute or two. Have you ever had a, an appliance or a piece of electronics that you thought was broken? And come to find out, it just wasn't plugged in. That can be a little bit embarrassing if you've already called somebody to come and, come, come and fix it. The, the fact of the matter is that <clears throat> when things are not plugged into the source of power, nothing works right. Life can be that way. Life can be that way. Sometimes life doesn't work because we're not, we're not plugged into God, or plugged into his word, or plugged into fellowship with the people of God. And the point of that is that we need the power of God flowing into our lives for it to function correctly because God created us and knows what's best for us. In my, uh, in my office in Temple Terrace, Florida, by my desk, there is a power strip. And so one, one end, of course, is plugged into the wall. It's plugged into a source of power. But at the other end, there are various outlets for other things to be plugged in to that. And the point of it is that while it derives power from a source, <clears throat> it also serves as a connecting point for other things to receive power as well. And that's really us as Christians, isn't it? We plug into the power of God and God's word and fellowship with God's people, but by the same token, we provide a connecting point for other individuals to connect to God and to God's word and to God's people. We are designed to be that conduit. In fact, somebody has well said that the church, oops, let me turn that on, somebody has well said that the church is the only organization on earth that exists for the sake of those who as yet are not a part of it. There's a lot of truth in that. Because we're not an exclusive club, right? If you go to Sam's or you go to Costco, what do you have to have to get in the door? You've got to have a card. Well, we're not like that. When Jesus said, whosoever will, he was speaking our language. We, we certainly believe that. We embrace that. And we want to live that. The church isn't just about us. It's about those who as yet are not a part of us. Part of the problem with that, of course, in 2022 is that the church is viewed by so many individuals with an awful lot of suspicion and an awful lot of mistrust. And even beyond that, trying to be that conduit to others can be, uh, it can be terribly intimidating. I mean, how in the world, for example, how, how do you share your faith with thousands of people milling around at the Texas State Fair? I think we all would like to be able to do that, but where would you even begin? Or we bring it down a little closer to home than that. How about just somebody by whom you work every day, or somebody by whom you live, or maybe somebody with whom you go to school? How are we to do that? How do we build bridges? How do we find common ground? Well, that takes us this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And you're very good Bible students, I know, and so you know that in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul comes to Athens. And when he comes to Athens, he would have seen <clears throat> the remains of the great structures like the Parthenon. And of course, if you go to Athens today, this is what you will see. Paul would have seen it, of course, in its glory, when it looked much more magnificent. Athens was a very impressive kind of, 
of city, of course. Uh, the, not only was the Parthenon there, but there were a quarter of a million people. 250,000 people lived in Athens. It was the cradle of democracy. It was the center of, of philosophy and art. It was known for athletics because the Olympic Games had their genesis there. So this was a formidable city in so many different ways. And of course, when Paul is there, you remember the story that they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And they began to say, we'd like to know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. And so they take him to the Areopagus. Areopagus is an interesting word because it refers to both the place where they met and the people who met there. And so they were both referred to as the Areopagus. And so they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, the people, at the Areopagus, the place. The Areopagus then would have been very impressive, not so terribly much today. In Paul's day, it would have looked very much like this. It's the area with the rounded circle on the right, and you can see that it sits in the shadow of the Parthenon. And so these individuals would be there. These were uh, impressive individuals. They were influential. They were powerful. They would discuss philosophy and current affairs and politics. But they would also discuss religion. And so it's why they say, look, we would like to know what this new teaching is that you are, that you're espousing. And you've probably heard it in Bible classes. If Paul would be invited to speak there, it would have been considered an honor, at least on their part. They were doing Paul an honor in that. Think about somebody giving their maiden speech in front of Parliament in England, or maybe somebody addressing a joint session of Congress in the United States. In their minds, this would have been a tremendous honor that they were giving to Paul. Here's what I love about Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul shows us way to find connection with people that we would think that we would have nothing in common with. He helps us find common ground with people to whom we would think we had nothing in common at all. And we use that language sometimes, don't we? We will sometimes say about somebody, well, we just don't have anything in common at all. Uh, I I love the Lord. He doesn't care about the Lord. I love the church. He doesn't care about the church. I love the Bible. He doesn't care about the Bible. I love the people of God. He doesn't care about the people of God. We just have nothing in common. I understand what we mean by that. Now, it's not exactly true, is it? Because we, we at least have a couple of things in, in common. <clears throat> we, all, we all have the same problem, don't we? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So we all share the sin problem. And then the solution for that, Acts 4 and verse 12, is that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so we all share the same problem and the same solution. Now, beyond that, we may not have much in common, but we do have that much in common. And what I love about Acts 17 is that Paul shows us four ways that we can build a bridge with people that otherwise we might think we have very little in common at all. How do we build a bridge for the gospel? So let's talk about that in the minutes that we have, and then the lesson will be yours. Here they are. Number one, the Apostle Paul opened his eyes. First thing we see in Acts chapter 17 is that Paul opened his eyes. Look at verse 23. As I walked around and I looked. Very simple statement, isn't it? I walked around and I looked. In fact, in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews. Now, he would have something in common with the Jewish, those of Jewish heritage, but also the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And so he spends time. So he opened his eyes. He spends time with people that he would not have a natural connection with. And so he 
he deals with Gentiles, and he goes to the Agora, to the marketplace, and he deals with people who happen to be there. The point of that is that he didn't associate just with Christians. I think sometimes we feel like, you know, if we could just, if we could just live kind of in a Christian bubble, where we really didn't have to rub shoulders with anybody who's not a Christian, that'd be a great way to live. Well, not really. You know, Paul said, look, among whom, you live in a crooked and perverse generation. We're not going to deny that, he said. But among whom you shine as lights in the world. What did Jesus say? Let your light so shine where? Among men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And the point of that is that we need to find ways to take Jesus into our world, right? Let your light so shine among men. Well, where do you do that? You do it wherever you do life, in your world. And so we've got to pay attention to the culture in which we live. Let me, let me emphasize that. We've got to pay attention to the culture in which we live. I love this statement out of the Chronicles. From Issachar, there were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I think that's impressive, that they didn't try to hide from the culture in which they lived and the world in which they lived. They understood the world in which they lived and therefore knew how God's people should respond to that. And we need to be sure that we do exactly, exactly the same. We've got to look for signs a spiritual curiosity. Paul does that. Do you have your Bible? Look at Acts 17 and verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, you may have a translation this morning <clears throat> that doesn't use the word religious. You may, you may have a translation that uses the word superstitious. And, and what that tells me is that the translators had some difficulty trying to decide what to do there. Religious superstitious. I would imagine if you could ask Paul, he would probably think, you know what, what these individuals are practicing as religion, in my mind, is just superstition. But it's interesting that he doesn't begin by telling them that. He says, you're very religious. I see a religious inclination in you. Even though to Paul, no doubt, it was just superstition, pagan superstition at that. But it's interesting that he doesn't begin by insulting them. He doesn't begin by saying, you know what, look, I, I see what's going on here. I see all the paganism. You, you people are just so ignorant that I, I'm not even sure I can talk to you. He just, doesn't, he just doesn't do that. He uses that to build a bridge. When I was writing this sermon about a year or so ago, <clears throat> I was, when I got to this point, I, I thought about a uh, year before last, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where I live, we were we were in the divisional playoff to see if we could go to the Super Bowl, which we did and which we won, by the way, just saying there. <clears throat> and so, uh, but we were getting ready to play the New Orleans Saints. And uh, my wife, Vicki, we've been married for 45 years. For the first 40 years of our marriage, Vicki never watched a minute of football with me, zero. But about five years ago, she got interested in football. But she was only interested in one team, that was the New Orleans Saints. And she really was only interested in one player, and that was Drew Brees. Now, my wife, Vicki, she loved her some Drew Brees, let me tell you. And so we're, watch, we're getting ready to watch this game, and they're interviewing Drew Brees, and she's, she's honed in on this. And as she's listening to him, she says, she says, that is one beautiful man. <laughs> and I said, Vicki, I can hear the words coming out of your mouth. And she said, oh, I know. <laughs> And I reckon I could have taken offense at that. But I was just so happy she's watching football that I'm going to let that slide. 
And Paul looks at this and he says, you know what, there is a religious inclination here, but look what he does in verse 23 with that. He said, I perceive that all things are very religious. As I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, here's his bridge, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And so Paul takes that religious inkling that they had and he uses it brilliantly to springboard to a discussion about the one true God. And here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. When, when you and I pay attention to our world and we pay attention to those in our world with whom we interact, we'll find that we have similar concerns, we have similar interests, and it creates opportunities. It's easy if we'll just begin to think that way. I think our challenge is that we tend not to think that way, to see those daily interactions as opportunities to build a bridge. The illustration that that I've used of that is a a gentleman that in our community in, in Temple Terrace, he, he has a dry cleaning business. And I've gone to that dry cleaner since I moved to Temple Terrace 29 years ago. The first week I was there, that's where I went because it was recommended. And at that point in time, there was an older gentleman who, who owned the business. And he was, a, he was a crusty old guy. I mean, he just, he just was gruff. But I always kind of got along with him. We did okay together. <clears throat> but he, he passed away. And his son inherited the business. And his son is the polar opposite of his dad. He is a congenial person, happy. He loves all his customers. They all love him. He's just a happy person. And I went in one day. This was about five years ago. I went in one day. And something clearly was wrong. And I said, Mark, I said, obviously something's wrong today. What, what's, what's going on? And he said, oh, Don. He said, it's, it's my wife, Belinda. I said, well, what's, what's the matter? And he said, well, he said, she's been diagnosed with a, with a really serious cancer. And I said, oh, Mark, I'm so sorry. I said, Mark, I tell you what, what's your wife's name? And he said, well, her name is Valinda. And I said, well, we're going to pray for Valinda. I'm going to pray for Valinda. And I said, Mark, the, the people in our church that use your business that you know, I'm going to ask them to pray for Valinda as well. And we did. We did. And Valinda went through all the treatment and the surgery as as often is the case. And one day, I went in, and I would ask about her periodically. I went in one day, and I said, Mark, how's Valinda? And he said, Don, we got, we got great news today. We got great news this week. <clears throat> We've been told that she's cancer-free. And I said, well, Mark, we thank God for that. Thank God. I said, We've been praying for her. Well, that very Sunday morning, that Sunday morning, I taught my Bible class back in the room where I typically teach, and I was coming through to go to the auditorium, and I went through our foyer, and there was a little lady there that I had never met before, never seen before, little tiny lady. She's about four foot seven. And I went up, and I stuck my hand out, and I said, I'm Don Truex. It's good to meet you. What's your name? And she said, well, my name is Valinda. And I said, are you Mark's Valinda? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, Valinda, we've been praying for you. And she said, I know you have. And about then, there was an older couple coming through, and <clears throat> Jerry and Kathy Finley. They, they were just evangelism machines. They, they talked to everybody. And I introduced her to Jerry and Kathy, and they took her in the auditorium. They sat with her. They took her to lunch. And they began to study the Bible with her. And at first, Valinda said, can we study the Bible at the church building? And they said, yes, that's fine. So that's what they did. And then she said, can you come to my house and I study there? They said, yes. 
And so they would study the kitchen table. And Jerry and Kathy are giving me reports about this. And they said, look, we're studying with Valinda. And we know that Mark is in the next room listening, but he won't come to the table. And they said, well, that's okay. And then before long, they're telling me, look, not only are we at the table studying with Valinda and Mark's in the next room, but now he's sending questions to Valinda to ask us while he listens in the next room. And I thought, well, we're getting close here. And then in a few weeks, I looked up on a Sunday morning, and there was Mark sitting by Valinda. By that time, Valinda had been baptized. And a little while later, Mark was baptized. So it took a little while with Mark. Mark's name was Kornheiser. He was the first person in his family for as many generations as he can remember who's ever left Judaism, ever. Now, here's the point of that. It just began because I observed something in Mark that I could ask about and tell him we would pray for. We can all find those occasions if we'll just, in normal communication, think about that and think about how we might, <clears throat> how we might build a bridge. Paul opened his eyes. But you know what? That's not enough. Opening your eyes and seeing the world, that's not enough. Secondly, I want you to notice that he cared about what he saw. He exposed his heart. In fact, he says, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Let's look at a different translation. He was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Greatly distressed. Interesting word. It's the word that's used in Hebrews 10.24, that we ought to provoke one another to love and good works. The word distressed here means to poke or to jab or to needle. And the point of it is that what Paul saw pricked his heart. It hurt him. He was looking at individuals who clearly had some kind of religious inclination and they were searching for God seemingly, but they were headed in the wrong direction. And his heart broke for them. He saw people who were debating philosophy and building temples and erecting statues and yet Their religion was empty, and so as a result of that, their souls were empty, and that caused him pain. Here's the question, ladies and gentlemen. Does it cause us any pain? Does it cause us any pain that those individuals around whom we live and with whom we interact, that if they've not been obedient to Jesus Christ, they are, what's the word for that? They're lost. See, we sometimes don't even think about that. We live in an all-inclusive, everybody-gets-a-trophy kind of world, a world where religiously everybody believes, look, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, God loves us anyway. And we forget. We forget that that neighbor that is so kind, or that co-worker who is so helpful, or that fellow student who is so brilliant, or that, that family member that is so loved, we forget again that if they've not been obedient to Jesus Christ, they are lost. They are lost. And we've got to care about that. The danger is that we become apathetic because we see this so often. We live around and with these people, and so it's easy for that edge to be lost. It's just that way about a lot of things in our world today, isn't it? I think today we've, we so easily become desensitized to so very much, and I think it's because we're inundated with so much information on a daily basis. And so, you know, it's just... It's another, it's another mass shooting. It's, a, it's another political scandal. Even in religion it can be that way. It's another prayer. It's another sermon. It's another Lord's Supper service. It's another whatever it may be. And if we're not careful, ladies and gentlemen, we can lose the freshness about all of that. That happened, by the way, in Athens. Did you notice that? 
the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, they spent their time in nothing else but to tell her here's some new thing. It was like they just had to be inundated with something new all the time just to hold their attention. By the way, there's a little piece of that I like. If I could digress here for just a minute. Every time I read this verse, I know this verse is quoted in a negative light. I know that, and it is. But there's something about that verse I like. And what I like about that verse is that they at least were willing to listen to something new. And I like that. Because we've all met people, haven't we? We've all met people that years ago, they closed the lid on their box of knowledge and they sealed it tight and they wouldn't let anything new and fresh in there if, it, if the world were dependent on it. But not these individuals. But the, the verse is quoted in negative light. We do need to be honest about that. Because these individuals seemingly had to have something new all the time just to try to capture their attention. We can be that way. We can be that way. With our young people, you know, they're looking, they're looking for the next Fortnite, and we're all kind of looking for the next binge watch or the next whatever it may be because we live in a generation that is often bored and seldom captivated by much of anything. And again, I think it's because we have so much information inundating us all the time. There's a book on the religious market right now <clears throat> called Bored Again Christians. Not born again, but bored again. And heaven help us, ladies and gentlemen, if that's ever us. You know, when I, when I saw that, I thought, you know what? I think if you had asked Peter, James, and John, what was it like to follow Jesus? They might have used many different adjectives, but bored would have never been one of them. And it shouldn't be for us either. It shouldn't be for us either. And if it ever is, then maybe it is because, as we're talking about as an overall theme that we'll mention in the worship period this morning, this overall theme of being all in. Not going to be on the periphery, but we are all in in what we're doing with our faith. If we are ever bored, could it just be a sign, a, a symptom, that maybe we're not all in in regarding our devotion to God. But you know what? That's not enough. It's not enough that he opened his eyes and exposed his heart. Third, I want you to notice that he engaged his mind. And by that I mean that we'll read repeatedly here that he reasoned with them. Look at this. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. And he reasoned in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. As his custom was, he went to the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Chapter 18, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. I want you to notice that. It's not enough to open your eyes and even care about what you see. We've got to have the ability to reason from the Word of God. Because preaching and teaching is described in the Bible as just that. It's reasoning with people. It's trying to persuade people. It's presenting a logical case for faith with people. We need to have that basis in order that we can share it with others. And we don't need to be afraid of that. Christianity stands on mounds of credible evidence. When I first moved to Temple Terrace all those years ago, for years, for years on Monday night, I taught a teenage a teenage class. We'd have teenagers from all over Tampa Bay that would come. And while I used a lot of different materials over those years, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the books that I used a lot was this by Josh McDowell, Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. It's a great book for teenagers. And I would talk to those teenagers and say, look, you don't need to do that. To become a Christian, you don't need to check your brains at the door. You don't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a Christian. Our faith stands on mounds of inscrutable evidence. And we need to know that and be able to reason and think about that with individuals. 
Somebody says, well, but Don, what if? What if you meet somebody who has a really, really sharp mind, but they have a different worldview and a different philosophical bent than we do? Well, Paul did right here. Notice what it says. There were a group of Epicurean, <coughs> Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they began to debate with him. I'm going to tell you, these were sharp folks. The Epicureans were individuals who believed they were hedonists. Uh, they believed that indulgence of self was the main purpose of life. Uh, from them we get the idea of eat, drink, and be merry. Later was appended to that because tomorrow we die. Their leader was Epicurus. These were smart people. The Stoics were exactly what their name implies. They were Stoic. They believed that external circumstances should never affect your internal equilibrium. And so they would have made good Brits, you know, stiff upper lip, uh, keep calm and carry on. This, this was them. It's the approach they had that they had to life. And so these two individuals, both of them, they are, they're intelligent. And they begin to debate with the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting that they call him a babbler. What is this babbler trying to say? That's an interesting word. <clears throat> it does not mean the way that we commonly use it in our, in our vernacular. It, it, you know, it doesn't mean, oh, I tell you what, in the sermon this morning, Don was just babbling on and on and on. That's not what it means. Uh, you may have a marginal note in your Bible that gives you the phrase seed picker. What is this seed picker trying to say? Well, what does that mean? Well, seed picker in the first century was used for a bird that would peck over here a little bit, and then you go over here and get a little bit, and then he'd peck over here and over here. And that's, that's the word here, seed picker. And they, they applied that to Paul. Why? Well, because that's what a lot of religious teachers did in the first century. And they assumed that he's of the same ilk. That religious teachers that would take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they would amalgamate that together. And that would be their, their religion. And you've probably met people who do that. I mean, you've probably met some people who are, they, they might not ever say that. Nobody would ever say that out loud. But I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of people today who function that way. I'll take, uh, I'll take all the Beatitudes. I'll take uh, all the fruit of the Spirit. I'll take seven of the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'll take once saved, always saved from Calvinism. And I'll take baptism for the dead from Mormonism, just in case. And I'll put that all together, and that's what I believe. Well, that was a seed picker in the first century. And that's what they believe Paul is. And Paul's going to make it really clear, really quick, that that is not at all what he's doing. So I want you to notice how he responds to that. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That's what he was teaching. He wasn't a seed picker going here, there, and yon. He wanted to get them immediately to the crux of Christianity, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that is the crux. That is the, the focal point, isn't it? You know, I've said many, many times that we could have had Christianity without Jesus doing a lot of things that he did. We could have had Christianity without Jesus walking on water, or Jesus turning water to wine, or feeding thousands on multiple... If Jesus had decided not to do any of those things, we could still have Christianity. But you can't have Christianity without the resurrection. It is the linchpin. It is the linchpin of our faith. No wonder Paul would say, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Jesus died and he was buried and he was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. You know, sometimes people say, oh, but you know what, Don? I tell you, there are a lot of things in the Bible I just don't understand. I, I just can't get my mind around. Well, you know what? Get in line, ladies and gentlemen. 
Peter told the truth when he said, Our brother Paul has written many things hard to be understood. But here's what I do understand. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I do understand that. And sometimes people say, well, I tell you what, Don. Sometimes, sometimes Christians aren't everything they ought to be. Sometimes they don't behave as they should. And sometimes they are divided about things they shouldn't be divided about. They're divided about politics, or they're divided about race, or they're divided about whatever it may be. Well, I, I will grant you that. That should not be the case. But here's what I do know. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that's where Paul takes them immediately, because that is the ultimate reasonableness of our faith. And then here's fourth and finally. I want you to notice that when all of that is done, He opens his eyes, he exposes his heart, he engages his mind, but now he's getting down to the business of connecting, connecting all of this to God. We don't have the time to read this morning, but that's in, that's in verses 24 through 31. We were almost out of time, so let me give you, let me give you the crux of what he's going to say in those verses. Number one, he says, first of all, God created us. He's going to say three things to them. Three things. Number one, God created us. Look at verse 24. God that made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. But he made the world and everything in it, and that includes you and me. And that means, ladies and gentlemen, that every single individual that you meet today and this week and for the rest of your life, every individual that you meet is made in the image of God and should be treated accordingly. Because God created us. Side note just here. Did you notice what he appended to that? He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Can you imagine the courage that it took to be standing in the shadow of the Parthenon and say, let me tell you something, the one true and living God, he's not on that mountain up there. He's not in among all those gods up there. That's not the true and living God. What amazing courage that took on Paul's part. God created us. Secondly, God's close to us. God's close to us. And he quotes poets from whom or with whom they would be familiar. And he says that, <clears throat> that he wants to, he is not far from us. He is close to us. And he quotes literature that they would, that they would understand. And for us, I mean, think about it. One of the names of Jesus, Manuel, God, God with us. He wants to be close to us. And then third, God will hold us accountable. This is verses 29 and 30. Do you have your Bible? Let's read together. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, the creation of God, we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. In other words, again, he's not up on that mountain. He's not in that temple up there. Look at verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so he says God holds us accountable. It's not a popular statement then. It's not a very popular statement now. But he's going to hold us accountable, so he calls on all men to repent. Could I just say one quick word about that? There's so many places in the Bible that I wish we could hear the inflection in the voice as it was said. And this is one of those places. Because as I grew up, I always heard this verse, this verse quoted this way. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, he commands all men everywhere to repent. I always kind of heard it that way. Like he's just, he just coming down on them. But I wonder if maybe he said it like this. Look, there's a time of ignorance that you can get beyond. You can do and be better. God gives you the opportunity to repent. Because what does repentance mean? 
It means to turn. And so maybe this is not so much a threat as it is an invitation. Maybe it's, it's God saying, or Paul saying, look, God's given you an opportunity to turn your life around, to go in a better direction. This paganism's not getting you anywhere. You can serve the one true God. God's going to give you a chance to get your life back on track. And you know what he does in the next verse? Look at this. He says, this is really important because God's appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by the man who is ordained. You need to repent because judgment's coming. And he gave assurance of all this, and he gets back to where he was before. Look at that. <clears throat> by raising Jesus from the dead, he gave assurance of that. And so he says, look, everybody can make a U-turn. Everybody can do better. You need to do that because we're all accountable to God. There's a day of judgment coming. And he gave assurance of that, that this is going to happen. And that he raised Jesus from the dead. What a beautiful way to bring all of that back together. Okay, I'm one minute over time, and i got one more minute I'm going to give you. All right? When I was with you four years ago, I went back. I always go back and look. What did I talk about when I was here last time? And in the Bible class, I always talk about evangelism in Bible classes, always. And when I was with you last time, I talked about four things that everybody can do in evangelism. And I said, look, it doesn't matter. If you're 8 or 18 or 80, there are four things that everybody can do in evangelism. I said, it, it doesn't matter. If you, if you didn't finish high school or if you have a Ph.D., it doesn't matter. There are four things that you can do. If you've been a Christian for six days or 60 years, you can do four things in evangelism. We all can. And just in case you may have forgotten over the past four years, could I just remind them of you real quickly? Here they are. Number one, everybody can shine. Everybody can shine. It's easy. What did Jesus say? Let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works and glorify your Father. Everybody can live a good Christian life. Everybody can do that. doesn't take any special training. Just take devotion to the Lord and determination to do what's right. Secondly, everybody can speak. I just lost half of you right there, didn't I? But, but here's what I'm told. I'm not saying that everybody ought to be a preacher. I'm not saying everybody should teach Bible classes. Because not everybody's able to do that. I understand that. But everybody can speak. Remember the little story about Mark? That's what I'm talking about. We can all find ways. What did Jesus say? Whoever will confess me before men, him will I confess before... He's not talking about the confession before baptism there. You get that in Romans 10. But in Matthew 10, he's just talking about daily life. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father. We can all find ways to speak if we'll just think about that. Just like the illustration with Mark. Third, everybody can invite. The easiest thing you will ever do in evangelism is invite individuals just to come to worship with you. It's the easiest thing you'll ever do. And it, you know what? What's the worst that can happen? You ask somebody to come to worship with you, what is the absolute worst thing that could happen? They might say no. They might say no. Well, we're big boys and girls. We can take that. We can handle that. It's the easiest thing you'll ever do in evangelism. To just Remember the story in the book of John, chapter 1, <clears throat> when, they're, when they say, we think we have found the Messiah, and they say, well, we're not... How can you be? And they said, come and see. Just come and see. It's the easiest thing you'll ever do. And then fourth, when individuals accept that invitation, we've got to welcome them. We've got to make them welcome among us so that they will want to come back and be a part again. Thank you all for listening so wonderfully well this morning.